Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 24th, 2015, and my guest is Paul Romer of New York University, where he is the director of the Marin Institute of Urban Management. Paul, welcome back to Econ Talk. Yeah, it's good to, to catch up again. It's been a while since we talked. Almost five years uh, since you were last a guest. So I wanted to catch up and see where your thinking was on uh, two issues that you're deeply involved in, charter cities and, uh, if we get to it, uh, growth theory. You recently made a distinction in thinking about urban development and urban growth. You made a distinction between reform zones and concession zones. Explain. Yeah. So the the, the, the background is, is you can think of a charter city as a kind of a zone – but a big one, uh, big enough to encompass an entire um, an entire city. One of the questions that you confront when you propose new zones is what fraction of existing zones have succeeded in any sense? Most zones fail. And so we have to ask, well, why is that? It could be that starting a, a, a zone is a, kind of like a, starting a startup firm, even if you do it right, there's a high probability that it won't succeed, but you you know you keep doing it uh, because the ones that do succeed are, are worth enough. But I think there's another problem with many zones around the world, which is that they fail in ways that you could have predicted when you started them because they took this form that I'm calling a concession zone. So what's the difference? A, a concession zone is a zone where you do something differently as a kind of a concession, a gift to some favored party. So you give a tax holiday or, uh, you know, some other kind of favored treatment to people who get those favors through mechanisms that are pretty easy to, to, you know, to forecast. The test of whether something is a reform or a reform zone is, do you want it to extend to the rest of the country and do you want it to last forever? So, for example, a, a tax holiday which is just for firms in a zone and just for a finite amount of time, is clearly a concession. There's no sense that this is something you'd want to extend to every firm in the country and extend uh, forever because typically they have no uh, plan for how they would recover the, the tax revenue that they'd, they'd give up that way. So, so the thing to ask in small or big zones all over the world is, are governments using these to try out reforms that they want to spread throughout the rest of the country and have last forever, or are they just using them to give some, uh, some concessions? And, and if they are to give some concessions, the probability that it will do anything good for the country is uh, the ex-ante probability is very low. Now, the way I understood the original idea of a charter city is that you have a system, you have a country, excuse me, where the governance of the country is, is failing in some dimension – and it's very difficult under that scenario, under that situation, for the government to credibly commit to reforming itself. And what a charter city would do is import essentially the institutions of a different country, which they're more likely and more credibly able to promise about property rights, the rule of law, uh, say crime. And in this way, you could encourage foreign investment uh, or any kind of investment in that city 
that you wouldn't be able to uh, attract if you were uh, stuck under the governance of the host country. Uh, now, in that idea is is only one kind of, of charter city or one kind of reform, correct? Because yeah. you're really talking about something more like a laboratory where trial and error could be used to assess um, yeah. effectiveness. Yeah. I think that the general concept here is that you use the decision to opt in to a new geographic area uh, as an opportunity to implement reforms of any sort, any type of reform, that might be controversial if you tried to implement it on a group of people who are already in a particular location. And think of it as a way to avoid, is to try something new without any coercion. You try something new where the people who live under this new regime uh, choose voluntarily to, to be part of that. And the thing that you try to do differently or try to, to do new can take many different forms. And different countries at different stages of development might try many different kinds of reforms or just innovations in their, their systems of rules. So uh, the one you were describing where the reform you want to undertake is one where you import government services from outside, I think that's a very, in, in practice, a very important possible type of reform for poor countries. But the more general concept would allow many different types of reforms. Um, you, you could even consider uh, a new uh, you know, reform zone slash city in the United States where you might do something like, say, well, uh, every vehicle in this city you know, has to have uh, autonomous control instead of driver control. Or you might say, we're going to ban any use of gasoline and diesel and just rely on natural gas and build the infrastructure for that. So there, there's things you can try in a new uh, setting that would be very difficult from a technical point of view and a political point of view to try in an existing setting. And we might learn a lot that generalizes from running an experiment like that. Well, what's exhilarating about it is it, it allows the choice of a, of a city to be similar to the, my choice of, say, a music player, right? Mm -hmm. no, nobody sticks mm -hmm. me with a music player. I go out and choose the one I want. I choose the phone I want. I choose the kind of house I want yeah. to live in. I choose the books I want to read. I don't yeah. – I can choose the government I want, but the costs of that choice are very different, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I can yeah, move. They're, they're, I can move. It just, yeah. It's, yeah. 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 It's um, I, when I teach about cities these days, I, I tell students to think of cities as intermediate entities between the nation and a business. So I don't think it's a, a city is identical to a, a, a business. And I think there's some city functions that we couldn't ever privatize to a, say a corporate governance accountability kind of model. Uh, policing is the, you know, the, the test case on this. I think very few people would actually voluntarily choose to go someplace where there's a police force and a judicial system that could lock you up that's run by a corporate entity. And, and I think that doesn't change whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit uh, corporate entity. So, so what we're doing is using some of the same mechanisms uh, for cities, like choice by you know, consumers or uh, users. We're using choice but it's on an entity which is still likely to have some form of government that's subject to some form of political uh, accountability. 
and uh, what the kind of this reform zone idea does is more fully exploit the possibilities of this thing that lies between the nation and the business. I'm surprised at the, your police example. Um, the standard argument, I'm not sure it's correct, but this is a standard argument that police yeah. is a public good. Uh, you wouldn't want to have competing police forces, et cetera. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who'd rather have a corporate security force, right, to protect my right. house than the government's. It doesn't do a particularly good job, particularly in poor neighborhoods. And I think there are a lot of people who would love to get away from having the government being yeah. able to lock them up. So I'm not sure that's really yeah. the quintessential example. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is one which is worth kind of looking carefully at the, you know, the the experience on these things. I've it's been a kind of an, an interest of mine, so I've paid attention to university police forces uh, because they are an instance of a kind of a corporate controlled, typically nonprofit corporation um, uh, entity that that runs a, a police force. One of the things you see is a systematic tendency for those uh, police forces to discriminate in their, you know, their uh, application of the law along lines that are, you know, beneficial to the entity. So, for example, they protect athletes uh, in, you know, in universities that have important, you know, yes, sports they programs. They protect, they protect athletes uh, from, you know, charges of, you know, sexual violence. And so I think we have to take very seriously the challenge of making sure that a, a, a kind of an organization that's strong enough to play a discretionary role in the enforcement of the law, we got to take very seriously the challenge of making sure that they're accountable in some way, in some way. that forces them to, to, to apply the law, to have equal, you know, equal treatment under the law. And, you know, if you can't even trust a university to apply equal treatment under the law, you know, how many of us would want to live, you know, under the police force that's run by, you know, Uber or Google or Facebook or uh, GM? I don't know. Take your uh, oh, take but, your choice. But, but Google has a motto that they won't do any evil. So we don't have to worry about Google. But more seriously, uh, you make an interesting point. The point about, about universities is great. The only problem is, is that it, there are many countries in the world, I think, where the citizens would prefer that university police force with its flaws to the flaws yeah. of their existing uh government system but let, let's move on um mm -hmm. yeah but, but just I mean, just to kind of to sort of one final issue or one final point about this is that this is an illustration of, of a general strategy i recommend which is getting very specific not just talking about these things at a very abstract level but in any proposal that somebody brings me about a, a new city and new forms of accountability and governance and so forth one of the first questions i ask is who hires and fires the police chief. Yeah. And it's that level of specifics that I think you have to grapple with uh, to you know, have a reasonable prospect of pushing something uh, forward uh, as a serious uh, alternative. So let, let's, I totally agree. So let's talk about um, some actual charter cities. You mentioned Shenzhen. Talk about Shenzhen and what it did and what its relevance is, if any. Yeah. Well, Shenzhen is a kind of an interesting counterpoint to Hong Kong. And when I was first promoting this idea, I relied on uh, Hong Kong. In retrospect, I wish I had promoted Shenzhen more. The difference was that Shenzhen was under the control of the Chinese government, the, the, the central government, and was used to implement a particular set of reforms, basically opening to the, um, uh, to the outside world. And, and Mao in 
recounting his his sorry not Mao uh, Deng Xiaoping when Deng Xiaoping recounted his you know his thought in setting up Shenzhen and the other initial um, special economic zones he's very clear about the importance of avoiding conflict and coercion and this is in the wake of the you know the the cultural revolution and the the trauma that people experience from that. So he was looking at Shenzhen as an experiment where they could try something different and do it without uh, without coercing anybody to, to live under that experiment. It was uh, phenomenally successful as a city. It grew incredibly rapidly in terms of population and uh, income per, per capita. It also is interesting because it attracted people from, from all over China and so it has a little bit of that immigrant feel and the dynamism of uh, a place that attracts a bunch of immigrants that we associate with uh, with the United States. It's this one little enclave in southern China where they speak uh, they speak Mandarin because that was the common you know uh, the common uh, dialect amongst all the people who um, who moved there. So it, it illustrates, I think, some interesting general principles. Uh, one the advantages of the kinds of policies they tried out, like opening up to direct foreign investment and uh, flows of knowledge from uh, the rest of the world. Uh, two, it illustrates the general principle that something that could be controversial on the whole country could be tried in a place where people have a choice about whether to go there, and then when it succeeds, it's easier to have that spread throughout the, uh, throughout the country. And three, it suggests something um, deeper about the benefits of migration and choice that uh, I think you know we can think about as uh, having larger implications than just um, uh, you know just how do we implement reforms. I, I think one of the interesting possibilities for both China and India is they could end up with a much more competitive market for local jurisdictions than most other uh, places in the world. And in a way, I think one of the advantages the United States has been able to exploit is that same kind of very competitive market for local jurisdictions that's led to better governance, better performance of uh, city and state governments um, than we would otherwise have because it was uh, more competitive. So big, big countries, if they leverage this power of you know, thinking about competition between uh, jurisdictions, not just between firms. Big countries can exploit that. And, you know, other entities like, oh, take the EU, which is trying to exploit some of this. Uh, right now, at least, what we see is that, you know, we, we're not getting as much competition between jurisdictions in the EU as, um, as you know, we, we can get in the United States, for example. Uh, just a couple of facts. It was... Was, was Shenzhen started from scratch? Was it an existing it, city of a small it was, size? It was essentially started from scratch. It was a very small fishing village. So it was virtually, and like, like Hong Kong, in fact, it was just a small fishing village, um, which was taken over, given a new you know, set of rules, and then grew very rapidly because of migration. What time period are we talking about, and how big did it get, roughly? Um, uh, so now it's a it's a city of about ten million. Most of that growth is between 1990 and uh, the present, but um, uh, I think it started about ten years before that. Uh, so like 1980, it was it was a few years before that, but roughly 1980 to 1990, you have a period of 
you know, kind of thrashing about as they're trying to figure out how to do things. Like, you know, they didn't have a, they didn't know what a labor market was. They didn't know how you legally, you know, administratively even thought about this idea that people could choose where they worked. So it took them a while to just put in place the the basic procedures and basic law about what can firms do, what can workers do. Um, and so there was this period of of experimentation and thrashing a bit and getting the, the, the structure right. And then it really starts to take off after after 1990. And the, the growth rates here are, um, you know, like in, in, the, in the teens or the, the 20s cumulatively. So for, you know, for, for two decades, you know, 15 to 25% growth uh, per year. So it's, it's really a, a phenomenal uh, story. I want to go back to your United States example. There is competition among jurisdictions. It, certainly in a, I used to live in St. Louis. There are dozens of local areas which um, led to an efficiency, which might be worth it, by the way, in return for more competition. So, for example, if you wanted to uh, start uh, a chain, if a chain of stores wanted to locate in the St. Louis area, they, they had to deal with all these different jurisdictions. They couldn't just go to the main yeah. county or city area. So that, that's a cost, but again, it may be worth it. What strikes me, though, is that there's a great deal, even though there is competition, because we live in democracy, in a democracy and because local governments are somewhat responsive to their populations, to the extent that those populations are not very diverse politically, uh, those cities are run in very similar ways, um, as are the suburbs. And then things sometimes go wrong because there's you know, the cities in America struggling. <laughs> so many are struggling right now. Some are doing fine. Some are not. But uh, it seems to me the more competitive the city is internally, uh, the better it does. If there's not much competition in the city, if one party, for example, has dominance, there's just not that much creativity going on there or competitive uh, improvement. So uh, I, do you agree with that? Well, I, I think what I would say here is that the analogy with, with firms and industries is is very rich. So one thing that we might conjecture is that I think historically we saw more instances of annexation and combination of different jurisdictions. It's a little bit like the market for corporate control, like takeovers, mergers, or occasionally divestitures. Mm -hmm. That that market has been shut down for cities. And I think we should try and make it legally and politically easier to combine jurisdictions or to, um, uh, you know, conceivably in some cases split, you know, split things off. There's been some discussion, I don't think it's gone very far, but some discussion about whether or not, for example, parts of Detroit, the city of Detroit, could be uh, basically you know, divested into different entities with different governance structures that could try something, uh, try something different. I, I think we should make it legally and politically easy to do something like that. You know, on the other side, I think in some places like St. Louis, people might conclude that you've got too many jurisdictions, they're too small, they can't operate on an efficient scale, and uh, then, you know, then there'd be an advantage to do some, to do some mergers or annexations. Um, then on the, you know, the degree of d differentiation, um, part of what we call the place I work, the Marin Institute of Urban Management, is that management is a really important part of making any organization work. So, uh, you know, uh, the different kinds of discount stores may look like they're all doing the same kind of things. You've got Walmart, you've got Kmart, you've got Costco, um, but some of those discount retail operations are better managed than others. And 
some of them succeed and, and, and others don't. So even if superficially cities look similar, uh, they may implement very different strategies for actually managing something like the police force. Those management strategies may then lead to very different crime rates, and cities will either shrink or uh, thrive based on success along those kinds of dimensions. Let me talk about a different challenge I think there that uh, a developed country has in implementing this. So you gave the example of driverless cars, which I'm really excited about. I'm not sure, quite sure why, but but uh, I don't know, the creative <laughs> side of me. There's something. Oh, uh, I have I have something to say about that, but we can come back to it later if you want. Okay. Uh, well, no, say it now if you want. Go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, um, I work with a really interesting group of people at, uh, um, at NYU, including people who kind of come from an urban planning or planning kind of background, but some of whom are, I call them, I tease them and call them reformed, uh, reformed planners uh, or reforming planners. So, uh, so they're, they're more market-like, but the, one of the best insights I got from my colleague, Alain Berteau, who, who comes out of the, you know, the planning architecture design school uh, founded by Le Corbusier. Um, Alain said that the way to think about the expense of a car, the social cost of a car is to think about the real estate it uses. Because when you drive a car down the street, you're using some very scarce and valuable real estate at a particular time of day, especially at rush hour. And the thing about a car driven by a human is it takes a lot more real estate than a car that's autonomously controlled because humans have to allow a lot more uh, distance between vehicles because we have slow reaction times. So one way to get excited about autonomous vehicles, I mean, I think a lot of people like the engineers who thought about this thought of this as a way to save time for somebody who would be driving um, uh, and now doesn't have to drive. But the other way that may be more important in terms of social value to think about these is think about them as uh, transport modes that use a lot less of the scarce, valuable real estate that we have in our streets. No, I agree with that. And we <clears throat> we did an episode with uh, Mike Munger this past summer where we talked about how the roads could be it wouldn't have to be as wide. You might not need a garage. You might not need to own any car. Uh, th there's so many uh, transformational aspects uh, to a driverless car. By the way, I would I would call your friends maybe they're – you call them reform, reformed planners or yeah. uh, reforming yeah. Yeah. planners. I would call them maybe right. recovering planners. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, I, that's, what, that's what I say too. So. Yeah, that's sorry. Right. I don't mean to hurt yeah. their feelings. But um, – yeah. What I was going to say is this. So if you say to me, hey, we're starting this new town. It's fabulous. It's going to have driverless. This is the town that me and 17 other people would want to live in. It's got driverless cars, uh, natural gas fuel, uh, minimum, no minimum wage laws. It's a whole range of, say, attractive things. So it's clean air. It's fabulous. <laughs> um, but then you say, well, but where is it? Oh, well, it's in the middle of. Uh, Nebraska, <laughs> but I don't want to live in the middle of Nebraska. So in a way, all the good spots have been taken in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's why there are cities there already. So one of the challenges I think of, I'm thinking about Shenzhen and and in India and China, where their you know their population is growing so fast, they're probably it's going to be very appealing sometimes to leave a city for a new place. It's a little more challenging, I think, in a country like the United States. Imagine where this magical uh, city of Oz would be. Yeah, well, I, I think we have to use a little bit of imagination um, uh, there. Uh, uh, this is mostly being facetious, but one, one thing I tell people, having visited Long Beach, California just once, is that we should think about Long Beach as a teardown. 
You know, it's a really ugly city, but in a beautiful location. Uh, yeah. We had to just tell down the whole, tear down the whole city. And then if you built like a Manhattan in Long Beach, if you could get like Manhattan densities and street activity and excitement with California weather, man, that would be a that'd be a successful real estate project. Well, but, I'm, laugh- uh, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because my wife. Before we got married, my wife lived in Long Beach, and I, I've been there a few more than a few times. It's it's yeah. a little harsh. So you it's know, a little harsh, Paul. But yeah. but it's not a beautiful but, place. So the but the question is, yeah. you said it facetiously, but the serious question is, you know that that's really hard to make that happen, right? Yeah. And yeah. and why? Yeah. It sh- maybe it shouldn't be. Yeah. Well, this is this is part of this challenge of of coercion when you've got very large numbers of people who have basically each one has a veto right through a property right it's almost impossible to get a decision that this comes up a lot when in the developing world when you try and like uh redevelop a, a neighborhood one way that sometimes succeeds is to get people to switch from a property right where they've got a veto right to uh basically a a share in a corporate entity so that then something more like a supermajority rule is needed to make a decision that influences, you know, every piece of land in, in the area. But that even making that transition, you know, like giving everybody in Long Beach a share of the corporate entity that's going to redevelop it, like, you know, like Orange County or something, making that transition right now would still be a problem because still some people would refuse to do it and they could be holdouts and slow the whole thing down. That's okay. But, they but, can live in their yeah. own little ugly corner. <laughs> Yeah. No, well, it, but the problem is they obviously. can get, yeah. they can capture a lot of the benefits yeah. of being in the middle of, of, uh, you know, what could be a, you know, much more, you know, dense, exciting city. Um, so, so I think practically the thing we should do is think about what are the locations that, uh, would be attractive to people. I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that an attractive climate is a luxury good. So if you're trying to build a competitive city in the United States, and you anticipate, you know, average income in the United States is going to be growing. There's going to be more demand for an, an attractive uh, environment. Coastal locations, the kind of Mediterranean climate uh, on the coast, those are one possibility. And there's a lot of coastline in California that's not developed right now. You'd have to find a way to get California voters to, you know, be excited about the idea. But, you know, if they don't want to do it, there's Oregon, too, and, and Washington, but there's other climates we know people like as well, like the, the interface between uh, the sort of, an, you know, the alpine climate in the mountains and the, the plains. You know, you can go, you can go up and down the, the Rocky Mountains on the, you know, on the eastern side where Colorado is or on the, you know, on the western side where, where Utah is. There's a bunch of places you could uh, build a, a, a new city. And, and cities take so little land that, uh, you know, there wouldn't be any problem finding another place like Salt Lake or Denver or... Uh, or Boulder. So, and just in case there are any Long Beach listeners still listening, I, I feel apologize. I feel bad that we were <laughs> we were tough on Long Beach. It is actually an okay place. It's just not as yeah. it's not as beautiful as some other parts of California. But that, maybe that's a good thing because it means people who are not mm-hmm. as wealthy can afford to live there. And this the Manhattan of of Long Beach would be very expensive. So I just want to say, in defense of Long yeah. Beach as it is, there's there are some good things about sure. it. Um, sure. Yeah. Including that. So I, I apologize to anybody from Long Beach <laughs> that I've offended. Yeah. But but it is it is useful for us to think about um, things could be different than the way they are right now. And the, the thought experiment I like is to say, what if we could have Manhattan density in a location uh, on the California coast? You know, so Manhattan densities in um, in Long Beach. You know, based on property values, 
people seem to be well willing to pay a lot to be in a dense place uh, like like Manhattan. We, we've got a system in the United States that produces lots of um, you know Houston style cities in you know these sunny uh, southwestern climates. But the thought experiment is: Would people be attracted to uh, a Manhattan like you know environment in one of those one of those sunny climates? If, if you decided the answer was yes, you'd still have to figure out how would you get you know how would you get there. But it's uh, I find it a, a, a fun thought experiment. Yeah, well, that was sort of I was going to that was my serious version of Long Beach, which is, you know, why don't we move in? We're talking about radical reform, which is fun to th- think of. They're interesting thought experiments, but not so practical, perhaps, uh, in the situation. At least this one we're talking about. Why aren't we moving to, in that direction in a marginal way? Why aren't we taking steps toward increased density in Houston or Phoenix or um, mm-hmm. or L.A.? And is that because of Existing regulation, or is it because that's not what people want? Yeah, I, I think there's there's an interaction here between the, the the land values and the transit that's really important. If if the only way to support man, Manhattan densities is with a subway system, then you got to figure out how to finance the subway system. And you know, part of what we've learned is that the value of the subway system will show up to a large extent in the value of the land yep. so that you can't just think about, you know, sending out giving out a contract for somebody to build the subway system and try and finance it based on the, the fair revenue. What you got to do is somehow uh, internalize the increases in the value of the land induced by the kind of access that a, a subway can provide. And, you know, the problem with subways is they're just, they're very lumpy and, and big. You know, if you even if you're doing a large, if you're a developer and you're doing a large neighborhood, you can't invest in a subway that would give this neighborhood access to the the entire city. So we might need some kind of ability to kind of innovate and uh, uh, try new things at the level of, say, all of Long Beach rather than, you know, parts of it that could be redeveloped. But, is- but what's but part of what's exciting about the autonomous vehicles is they might give us a path towards a different kind of uh, transport structure Absolutely. that could support much higher densities. Um, without necessarily, you know, having having to, to tunnel. Yeah, but, but LA has a has a subway. It's it's not very good. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that I mean it's not very well used. Uh, it it seems to me that it, the causation goes in the opposite direction. When a city gets dense enough, a subway can make sense. Yeah. I, the way I would think about it is that I mean I really love Manhattan. I don't want to live there, but I love visiting there. Um, I don't need – I use the subway, but if it didn't have the subway, it would still be great because there's so much going on so near everything. Um, right. That doesn't yeah. happen in L.A. Why not? It's yeah. not I don't think it's because they well, don't I have think, a good subway. Yeah. I think these things are closely linked because if you think about – you live in a neighborhood in um, L.A., for example, and somebody provi- proposes some new structures that are go- going to bring a lot more people into that neighborhood, but you don't do anything about congestion. People who live nearby – will say, look, the direct effect on me is going to be that there's going to be a lot more congestion because we allow free access to the streets to anybody who lives nearby. So I'm going to oppose a zoning change or, you know, a change in the floor area ratios that would let dense buildings be uh, be built here. So I think it's problems advantaging congestion and transport that partly induce the political opposition, which prevents the densification. So this kind of loop that we want to get going, more density, you know, more uh, transport options is tough to get going 
when you trans started at a point where people already feel like, gee, the streets are already so crowded. I don't want any more people around. And they're onto something. I used to say when I lived in L.A., uh, a lot of people lived there and they all brought their cars. Uh, and and it, it's certainly – I mean the way you're thinking about it is, is absolutely right. It's a fascinating <laughs> point about, about transit and, and the potential that, that driverless cars have to, to change that. Um, yeah. By the way, you made a point with me. Um, I don't think it was in a discussion. It was probably like in an email or uh, – but it wasn't in the last podcast. But a point that um, – the usual economist suggestion, which is, well, let's put a congestion charge on this. This is a this is a lose lose proposition for the people who are deterred from driving by the uh, by the congestion charge. So um, we got to be a little more thoughtful about what are the politically feasible mechanisms for solving some of these uh, congestion problems that we've we've gotten ourselves into. Yeah, economists tend to jump at the um, congestion tax as a quote efficient improvement, which it is. But if the gains right. are mostly flowing to the to somebody other than the drivers who are deterred, or yep. there's no way to give them back those gains without undoing the effect of the discouragement, the deterring, uh, you're um, not going to work very well. So it's a, it is a fascinating political and yep. economic interface there. Uh, and, and, and we've seen you know we've seen some creative solutions to this when um, when New York City put forward this proposal to do a bunch of development on the. Uh, on the west side, so like Hudson Yards, part of it involved an extension of the number seven uh, subway line. So they were simultaneously trying to say, we're going to change the rules so you can build a lot more apartments there, but we're also going to provide some some better subway access to that place. Um, the other case that I thought was interesting was Stockholm, where they said that they were going to take the revenue from the congestion tax and then use that to subsidize public transit like uh, like buses and the really clever thing they did in Stockholm was they said, let's live with this for, I think it was seven months. So they put the taxes on, they, uh, the congestion charges, they subsidized the buses. And then after seven months, they took the taxes away and they took the buses away. And then they said, all right, let's vote on whether or not to bring that stuff back. And uh, uh, then it actually passed, uh, passed the vote. Do you remember how, bad, how big the margin was? It's fascinating. You know, it, it was it was close. Uh, it was in the you know the fifty the fifty to fifty five percent range. That's a so shame. So even there, it was <laughs> even there it was close. But I think they did it that way because they knew that if they had just taken the vote prior to that, it wouldn't it wouldn't have even crossed the fifty percent mark. Yeah. And so what happened was you know ten you know whatever ten fifteen percent of the electorate through experience, discovered this was, uh, um, you know, a beneficial arrangement. And that was enough to make it uh, pass, a, you know, this 50% threshold in a referendum. So when we first talked about this, you were uh, very enthusiastically trying to get, uh, a, we've been talking about the United States, but much of your efforts have been to try to get a poor country with bad governance, disappointing rule of law, perhaps corruption, uh, an opportunity to to create something that would be administered by typically a foreign country. Uh, mm -hmm. How's that been going? What's your well, experience? Because you've been you've been at yeah, it for a while. It's I'm sure yeah. it's frustrating. Is there any yeah. anything good going on? Well, I, part of this is I alluded to before by saying that even with the right ex ante conditions, that the odds of success here are not high, but. The probability of success is not the metric we should use to judge if it's worth undertaking. And so here it's exactly analogous with the idea of, of startup firms. Even if, you know, 90% of startup firms fail, 
it still might be a good idea to tolerate or even encourage firms to, to start because the failures cost very little and the ones that succeed can generate uh, enormous benefits. So you have to go into this anticipating that there will be um, a pretty high failure rate. Um, you also have to go in understanding that it's a, it's a somewhat unusual set of circumstances that can make this viable. If, if a government has, you think about like Somalia right now, uh, or, uh, you know, I know, parts of, you know, the, the, you know, Iraq and Syria that where it's not clear there's any government at all. This isn't a project that could be undertaken easily in one of those places. So you have to have a government that has at least some level of, of capability and some level of legitimacy so that if it tries something like this, it will be, it will be durable. That in the, you know, the citizen's eyes, it will be viewed as something that was done with legitimacy and will be respected over time. So you need some level of that, but um, the governments that have the most of that don't don't actually need to implement a reform zone because they're they're pretty well they're pretty well run. So you're looking for this kind of this middle uh, this middle ground, and uh, Honduras was an interesting case because the uh, the moment where I engaged there was one where they had a president who had just won uh, in a fair and open election a strong majority of the vote. And this was just after, remember, there had been a, a coup that, that kicked Zelaya out of the country. And the party that you know had kicked him out, which is his own party, was in power. The people who came into power under President Lobo was the other party. So he had a strong democratic mandate and actually a strong majority in the Congress as well in his party. So you had a case of a country which has suffered from bad governance uh, and weak institutions, but yet where you might have had a window where there was some strong democratically you know, supported uh, authority that could have tried something new. So I thought it was an interesting window to try and pursue. But um, that project basically went, went off the rails and I had to separate myself from, uh, from work there. Right now I'm in the mode of... You know, some low-level conversations with different places where there's some exploration of the, this idea, but um, this isn't something you can you can force. That uh, an uh, an opportunity might present itself, and you know, if it does, great. But in the meantime, there's an awful lot of other people who are going to move to uh, basically expanding versions of existing cities. There's a lot of things we can do right now that could make the, that process of expansion. Uh, turn out much, much better. And so there, there are lots of ways to stay busy, even as you kind of keep, uh, you know, waiting and watching for an opportunity to try something really ambitious, like a new, you know, a new Shenzhen. Yeah, you, you need a visionary. And by definition, visionaries are rare. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, it just takes one to try it. And as you said, it yeah. may not work, but be great if it mm -hmm. did. Um, I recently, but you need a visionary with a visionary with some, you know, some legitimacy as yeah, well. No, correct. Because um, kind of, you, you're a visionary. It's not that's not enough. Um, yeah, right. yeah, some power, power and some legitimate and, power. You know, you yeah. A couple things. Yeah. Um, recently interviewed Alex Tabarrok about. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Gurgaon, India, which mm -hmm. is a mm -hmm. sort of private city. Uh, have you kept up with that? What's going on there, and whether that has any uh, lessons for the rest of us? Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, you know, the, the experience there is one where it was really just a private development or a kind of a, really a coalition of developers who worked in a, in a particular area. 
and um, they haven't managed some of the sort of city scale uh, problems that uh, that that ideally they they should have addressed from the beginning. The one that we put a lot of emphasis on right now when we're talking to cities that are going to expand is a distinction before development takes place of what's the public space as opposed to the private space. Because that public space is what you're going to use for the sidewalks and the road space, the mobility that facilitates all the interactions that make cities uh, valuable. And uh, that public space has got to interoperate across you know, like private uh, developments. And you got to get developers who pay attention to not just, am I giving access to, you know, the particular parking garage for this building, but am I giving access to traffic who need to flow through my development uh, to get to, you know, the, the, the center of, uh, of Delhi or to get out to some, some far suburbs. So there's a coordination problem about setting aside the land that you're going to use for the roads and, and also for the, for the sidewalks. And the private initiative there um, in Gurgaon completely failed on on getting this right. And this is this is consistent with what we've seen with lots of other cities around the world, which have allowed relatively free private development, but haven't had the state which protected the public space, and then they're left uh, with you know inadequate mobility. Yeah, and unfortunately, this is this is this is almost impossible to fix after the fact. So Bangkok, for example, is a city that expanded rapidly. Housing was relatively affordable because it was so easy to add more land and develop it. But they didn't do like what New York City did, which was protect the avenues and the streets. And so Bangkok is now just just completely choked with um, with traffic. And if they ever want to do something like put a storm sewer in, you also don't have uh, these public spaces that you could use for your, uh, you know, your kind of your, your utility quarters. Yeah, you, get, you, can, you can get islands that are really nice inside the island, but if you need something outside the island, it's not so good. It's kind of a, yeah. you know, it's a, yeah. it's a challenge. What else are you doing in the urban development and besides uh, hoping and waiting for that visionary? This kind of advice, obviously. Well, what else? Well, yeah, there's, there's one – if you think about back of the envelope, roughly 5 billion more urban residents in 100 years than we have right now. Most of that's going to come from expansion of existing cities in the developing world. But this is the chance where we might be able to build a few new, new ones. If there's that many people who want a, a chance at urban life, you know, this is the time to do some, some startup cities. But if most of it's going to come from expansion, we have a, what we call the Urban Expansion Initiative, which is basically advising local governments in you know, various parts of the developing world how to carry out. I mean, literally what New York City did in 1811 when they had this plan that laid down the, the rectangular grid of streets and avenues on, on Manhattan at a time when the place where, you know, the area that was surveyed for these streets and avenues was all just, just undeveloped farmland uh, when they made this decision about where the public space was going to be. Crazy, right? It's, it's just yeah. uh, <laughs> really remarkable. Uh, but it yeah. does it, – it's an interesting thing. I hadn't thought about it. I, I, sorry, we keep going back. Maybe I'm sorry I'm not. It's a lie. I, I'm excited to keep coming back <laughs> to driverless cars. Given that there are a number of people, a number of corporations working on this, Uber, Apple, uh, Google, 
Uh, I feel like Elon Musk uh, is involved in some way, and he, he's the guy who's going to start that new city on the California coast using some new kind of transportation to reduce <laughs> congestion. So I hope you've yeah. talked. I hope you've talked to him. But but the idea yeah. that they would make an offer uh, to India to an Indian city that mm-hmm. has to start from scratch because the Indian government's desperately trying to avoid the problems they've already inherited that have been created with bad infrastructure and congestion is um, maybe how it'll actually happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, even, you know, even the, some of these smaller cities in, in New York, when they planned for expansion on Manhattan, they planned for a sevenfold expansion of the built area of, of the city. It was really an amazingly ambitious plan. So if you take a small city somewhere in the developing world, and if they're imagining a sevenfold or tenfold expansion of their built area, you know, you're, you're getting close to uh, something that's almost an entirely new city. So, you know, with, with planning for sub- substantial expansion, you start to open up the kind of possibilities that um, you might get in the limit if you started something uh, in, entirely new. But part of our message to these, these mayors and city officials is that even if the only thing you do is define the public space and then protect the public space, you'll create options that will make your city much more valuable in, in the future. And you can also unleash this kind of reinforcing cycle, which is that your city becomes the place that everybody wants to come to and do things because everybody's going to come here and, and, and do it. So even something that seems unambitious, like just define something like the arterial grid of roads and utility corridors in a bunch of land, which is currently, you know, just, just farmland, just by doing that, you could unleash a faster and much more successful process of development than, than we see in, you know, in most places in the developing world. And if you can do it then in a way which, you know, say enhances the adoption of, say, compressed natural gas vehicles instead of, you know, diesel and gasoline, you could actually have a, a, a rapidly growing city that has the cleanest air in the developing world. So, you know, we had, uh, I, I interviewed... Um Nina Monk and Jeffrey Sachs last year about the Millennium Millennium Villages project. And that's an attempt to improve the lives of people living near subsistence in very poor parts of the world. And I somewhere in there, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, I raised the possibility that the, maybe the best solution for the lives of those people is luggage. Uh, get them to a place where they can flourish. Now, if people want to live in a subsistence farming world, which I'm sure there are some people who want to live in that world, that's fine. But if they don't, what they've naturally done without UN or anybody's outside help is they've moved. Yeah. They've moved to yeah. cities uh, and they've gotten more. They've gotten more prosperous. Uh, what you're suggesting is that we could make the cities themselves more prosperous by the right kind of innovation, the right kind of rules. Uh, where do you come down on? Do you feel this on, on this kind of choice? Do you feel this is a choice that, that we ought to be focusing on getting people out of yeah. subsistence settings? Or do you think we should be trying to figure out ways to help them? My view is we're not very good at helping anybody. So I'm, I'm kind of skeptical yeah. about the yeah. whole thing. But uh, I'd love your yeah. perspective. Well, I, you know, I, I think giving people more choice on where they live is an incredibly powerful practical strategy for improving the quality of life. But the problem is not, frankly, it's not, it's not luggage. 
people are quite mobile. They, they get themselves, you know, like these poor kids from Honduras who get all the way to the Texas border somehow. And, you know, they face incredible costs and threats, but they, they manage to do it. So, so people can move. The problem is, is that there's no place that's ready to give them basically a legal spot where they could have a place to live, you know, a, a legal uh, piece of land where they could, they could build a house. So our whole mission in encouraging expansion, plans for expansion in a bunch of cities around the world, maybe starting some new ones, our whole mission is to try and create the supply side that could respond to the demand that people have to move to a, 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 a new city. And, you know, as I suggested before, by invoking competition between cities, it's not just like a technocratic issue of you've got a certain number of people and you want to just, you know, move them by fiat into cities from the rural area. What you want to do is take people in the rural areas and ideally have every family in the rural area know that there are several cities that would, you know, be happy to attract them as permanent residents. And that kind of choice, I think, is much more likely to raise the quality of life of poor people than this kind of uh, moral suasion through the Millennium Development Goals. So I'd, I'd rather replace the lot of them, every single one of them, with a single goal, which is that every family should be able to choose between a number of different cities that are willing and eager to attract them as, as permanent residents. But, you know, to get to that goal, we got to worry about the supply side. How do we get those locations established that really would compete to get them as residents? And historically, urbanization usually is a pretty um, unpleasant – historically, again, it's not always true at every place today. But historically, you move to the city, you don't have a very good life, but your kids probably have a better one or have a chance at a better one. Certainly, that was the American experience when people – emigrated from their home countries to the United States or when they came from the South to the North. Urban life can be very harsh, bitter and cruel, tough, but um, there's it's alive and they, they grow mm-hmm. and they, they're not stagnant. And I think, you know, when you think about someone in a very poor subsistence farming situation, you say, well, I have good news. There's a place where people are better off than you are and they even speak your language and you might have a cousin there. But the question remains, well, yeah, but what am I going to do there? Where am I going to live? What's my job going to be? And what are my children's, more, more importantly, what are my children's opportunities? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we, we do know for sure that there's a huge excess demand for urban life. People will take huge risks, uh, take on huge costs to get to cities. They'll live in, you know, very difficult circumstances, often illegal, informal circumstances, crime-ridden circumstances, to get the benefits that cities offer, so we know there's a big demand there, and the challenge is how to how to meet the uh, have a supply response that could could meet that demand, and this kind of moral suasion mandate kind of mode of thinking could actually be very counterproductive here. So so imagine, for example, that uh, the moral suasion strategy succeeds and we say to every mayor around the world that you have to make sure that whenever somebody moves to your city, they have a minimum of, you know, uh, 250 or, you know, whatever, 250 square feet per person to live in and they have to have, you know, uh, their own toilet facilities and indoor plumbing in the apartment. And you, you layer on all these mandates. 
then, you know, the calculation the mayor is going to do is, okay, well, each additional 10,000 residents I get, I've got some huge mandate of expenditure I've got to meet somehow. And, you know, the, the initial revenue I get from this is, is going to be way less than that. So all I'm going to do is try and keep people from coming yeah. to my city. What's in it for me? So we, <laughs> yeah. So we, we got to think about, uh, you know, one way I kind of talk about this is, you know, maybe it should be okay under the building codes to build, you know, apartment buildings where people share, share the bathrooms, you know, maybe you don't have to have a bathroom in every single apartment. And of course, you know, everybody is, is in, from a you know, rich country is like, you know, it's just, just unbelievably offended by this suggestion. And then I remind them if they're sending their kids off to college, yeah. this is exactly the kind of housing they're yeah. going to send their kids to. And it doesn't seem morally, you know, uh, offensive that, you know, I should, they should propose it for their, their kids. So we got to be willing to make some trade-offs on amenities and, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of uh, making these kinds of possibilities available um, to make it attractive to mayors to get into this business of saying, you know, we'd be happy to attract, you know, 100,000 or a million you know, new residents from rural areas to come get their first chance at opportunity in our city. Yeah, so they don't, we don't just, it's not luggage, it's luggage and brochures. Like, like come here. <laughs> you, know, you need a, one of yeah, those racks yeah. they have in it, in motels with all the different uh, options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you, but you need, I mean, there's part of this thing that's exciting about like the it, replicating the 1811 plan in New York City is that kind of planning costs almost nothing. So they had a single surveyor who surveyed, you know, all the avenues and all the streets over about three years. And they had a three-person commission who, you know, backed up his, his decisions. But sort of making the plan for the public space costs, costs very little. And New York said, basically, we're going to just accommodate, you know, millions of people who came in as, as migrants to get jobs in garment assembly, which, you know, seems like the place where immigrants to cities all over the world get their, their first job. They made that plan in, in New York City um, with very little expenditure from the, um, you know, from the city government side. And that forces you to ask some interesting questions like, well, so wait a minute, what were the sanitation facilities as these blocks started getting development, get, getting developed in New York City, according to this grid plan? You know, well, for the early decades, uh, a lot of this was still with, uh, you know, latrines uh, and, uh, you know, with, with wells. And, uh, you know, they eventually brought sewers in and they eventually got water from the, you know, the Croton Aqueduct after um, eight, uh, 1840. But in the early stages of urban expansion, you might be laying out places where people could build very modest accommodations. And in the initial stages, we may be dealing with, you know, latrines and maybe even just trucked in water. Uh, but if it's affordable enough and it's legal and it gives people a chance, uh, they'll, uh, they'll pursue that strategy and the mayor will be in favor of it, and his constituents will be in favor. Yeah, I interviewed James Tooley about uh, for-profit private schools and how Westerners are aghast at the conditions, and the people who who attend those schools love them. They're better than their mm -hmm. – that's what they're used to because that's their houses mm -hmm. don't have all the amenities, so their schools don't either. But by Western standards or big city standards, even in poor countries, it's they're not very attractive. But the people prefer them to the public schools, so it's it's a yes. good thing. Yes. Well, I see we're not going to get to growth theory today. We're going to push that off to another time. So I want to continue. We'll finish it. We've got about five minutes left. We'll talk some more about um, uh, about urbanization. So I want you to reflect. Uh, on although, although, let me actually, can I just interject one, one thing that sure. I, I was hoping to be, be sure and point out? It's that a number of people have wondered, how did I make, you know, what was the connection between growth theory and, and cities? 
And it's a relatively simple connection. The When I was first thinking about growth, I was thinking about like technological change and innovation, where it's a theory that applies to countries that are at the kind of the technological leading edge. So it's a theory about, you know, why did the U.S. surpass Britain as the world technology leader? But then if you look around the world, most of the growth that we see is not growth at the technological frontier, but it's catch-up growth. It's countries and people who are far behind the technology frontier. And the big question is not how do those countries innovate something brand new, but how do they get access to all the stuff that's already known someplace on, on Earth? And what I concluded was that to speed up catch-up growth, think about you know more innovation, more R&D, more you know college and PhD training, all that's completely irrelevant. What you need are gateways that open up a country to an inflow of stuff from the rest of the world and that, you know, effective cities are the key gateways. So I started thinking about urbanization because it seemed to me to be the most important place where a government could intervene, do something that could then lead the, to the kind of, you know, really spectacular catch-up growth that we've seen in China and, you know, in a few other places before that, like, you know, South Korea. Yeah, it's... Um that's really, that's very interesting. Um, the, what I wanted to ask you about to close, though, is the the role of, of the expert. So cities, I have to get in this quote that you uh, mentioned in a recent presentation uh, from Gordon Brown. You said, he said, yeah. uh, in establishing the rule of law, the first five centuries are always the hardest. Um, there's a deep truth that's a very depressing and, and informative uh, quote. It, obviously, there are deep, deep, difficult cultural thing advantages and disadvantages that explain some of the differences between how people's lives are in some places rather than others. Uh, there are proximate causes, but you really want to know what the deep cause is. And a lot of times it's just the rule of law is not well established, and it's not obvious how you get there from here. We all know property rights are a powerful thing, but we're not so sure as to – we don't have a good theory yet, I don't think, of why property rights are reliable in some places and not so much in others. We have some guesses. but uh, So the question is, you know, when you talk about you know, we need mayors to be open to people moving there in the tens of thousands or millions, um, what's your role in that? Or, you said you're, you don't like moral suasion. Aren't you kind of – Aren't you doing a different kind of moral encouragement? You're trying to say, hey, look, here's this, this stuff that would make your lives better. And, and you always have to ask, well, and why aren't they doing it? And, of course, that answer is not always easy. But reflect mm -hmm. on, on your role as what you see as, as making a contribution toward that catch-up process or making cities better. Yeah. No, I think there's, there's two things that an academic or an intellectual can offer. Um, one is there are sometimes possibilities that just haven't occurred to people. So, you know, our, our market, you know, intuition as economists is that everything you need to know is already known and the market's basically exploiting all of that yeah, and we're already sure. at, the, at the right place. But, but there, there are always, there's always room for imagination and suggesting new things. So I think, Suggesting that there is a possibility that we haven't tried yet is one of the roles of, uh, you know, an academic or a you know, policy entrepreneur. The other is to, to do what I call reframing, which is to take something which people recognize as a possibility, 
but they say, oh, we couldn't do that because it's morally inappropriate. So it's kind of a filter, a moralistic filter, that the things we consider in terms of their practical uh, application are only the ones which pass the moral filter, and then we consider the practical consequences. And sometimes my role is to try and say, look, take something that you wouldn't consider, you know, like like housing with shared bathrooms, you know, dormitory-style housing. Um, take Try and get people who have filtered that out as a, as a possibility, not even allowed that, and said, let's reframe this and see that this might actually be a good thing. And then it gets brought into the set of things that we consider as, as practical alternatives. And, you know, on the flip side, um, try and uh, reframe some other things too. Like this idea of pushing mandates onto government officials, if the effect is to make it much more expensive, if say a bunch of residents come into a city, Imposing all those mandates uh, then basically shuts down the process that we're really trying to encourage, was letting people move to, to opportunity. So part of the reframing is to say, you know, all these mandates we want to impose through the Millennium Development Goals and so forth, some of these may actually be, even though they sound like morally good things to do, they may actually be counterproductive. So, to, you know, to summarize, I think it's this combination of imagining things that people aren't yet considering and then pushing into the set of things that we're considering some things that we know are there, but we've kind of filtered out on, on moralistic grounds. And that's where I feel like there's some possibility of making a, a difference. And you do that partly by writing uh, or you can do it partly by showing instead of telling. And, you know, recently I've been persuaded that there's a lot to be done with, you know, one instance of showing compared to end papers that, that tell. Explain that. What do you mean by showing? Oh, well, you know, trying to see if there was a possibility to implement something like a charter city in, in Honduras. You know, I think one success in showing how this could work and what its effects are would be a lot more influential than, you know, 10 papers that talk about it as a hypothetical. And, and in the same way for urban expansion, you know, we can write papers about, well, you know, these, these cities in the developing world could copy what New York did with the 1811 plan. But we, we've got cities that are doing this in Colombia and Ethiopia, and we're signing up cities in Mexico and, you know, India, other places. And you get some cities that implement this now, succeed in it, then that will get attention from both academics and uh, other mayors. My guest today has been Paul Romer, and I uh, hope to have you on again soon to talk about where uh, growth theory is these days, but that's down the road. Thanks for this conversation about about cities. Thanks for being Yeah, and let's do the up. next one. Let's do the next one um, sooner than uh, five years from now. Sounds good. Thank you, Paul. Take care. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>